Welcome to Inside the Coaching Mind, conversations on leadership, coaching, and team building, presented by HumanX Ventures. Your host, Terry Pettit, led the University of Nebraska volleyball team from 1977 to 1999 and coached the Cornhuskers to their first national championship in 1995. Today, Coach Pettit mentors coaches, authors books, and presents to corporations and businesses on leadership and team building. Now, without further ado, here's your host, Coach Terry Pettit. This is Terry Pettit, the host of Inside the Coaching Mind. I'm pretty excited about what we uh, what we have for you today. We have two uh, extraordinary people. But before we get to that, I want to thank our sponsor, HumanX Ventures, which helps athletic teams and organizations realize their potential through building excellence with talent, culture, and teamwork. HumanX uses science-based research selection tools to help coaches and student athletes at the high school, club, collegiate, and Olympic level build chemistry by design. Thank you to HumanX. Uh, one of our guests today, many of you are familiar with, Kirsten Bernthal Booth has been a guest before. She's the head coach at Creighton University where the Blue Jays have somehow won the last eight Big East championships. And uh, and uh, Kirsten and her husband, Eric, uh, oldest daughter, Reese, recently committed to play at Creighton's rival, Northern Iowa, um, as, a, as a setter. That has to be exciting. And, um, and I wanted Kirsten on here because I, I felt it was – really important when we talk with Scott Morton uh, to have someone who's currently coaching and someone who has coached through COVID, the portal and NIL. And uh, Kirsten has, um, in my opinion, exceptional emotional intelligence. Our guest is Dr. Scott Morton, um, who has a PhD in sports psychology. She's the for former director of mental performance at the university of Missouri and the founder of Go For It Mental Performance Coaching in uh, Columbia. Go For It, uh, I, I assume means litter rip, all in. Uh, you got a coach. <laughs> play, play without fear. Uh, Scott was also a shooting guard uh, in high school and in college, uh, a shooting guard for, um, I assume, a high school in Bozeman. And so you. Yeah, you, you realized your dream. Um, I did a little research. Uh, you, you, you had 28 points in a game that broke a losing streak. Um, the Bobcats had lost 13 consecutive games until Scott scored 28 points. And then, um, and then you went to your senior year. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure... I think what great preparation to be a sports psychologist. Um, tell us about that journey, Scotta. Yeah, thanks, Coach. Well, first, I'm just humbled and honored to be in the presence of both of you. I'm feeling a little bit of an imposter syndrome right now where I think I should be asking you two the questions. So honored to be here. And, and you're absolutely right, Coach. I think it's really through my experiences as a college student athlete, which helps me build trust and rapport with my athletes because – I went from one end being this leading score, you know, pressured to get my stats up, win the games, to riding the bench and basically feeling like I was a team mascot my senior year. Um, 
And so it was really out of those experiences where my calling came. I, I had not a woe was me, three coaches, head coaches in four years. So we had lots of turnover. But then I had a, um, a very much of a fixed mindset. You know, my identity was very much tied to my performance. Um, being the leading scorer recognition mattered. And so when I went from my junior year to my senior year of losing that identity, um, that was probably looking back the best thing that probably happened to me, you know, to have to sit in my pain and, and find out who was Scott O'Morton without uh, the title and leader of leading score. So I'm grateful those, with those experiences because I think that's how I can empathize with, you know, um, one through 10 or one through 14 on that bench. Well, you, you, I've heard you say that your mom was a great performance coach. In what way did she help you during that time? Not only uh, then, I also think now, you know, it's my, my mom has been with me through my experiences since, you know, I was, a little girl at Gowton Gateway uh, Middle School. She was my homeroom teacher in sixth grade. I, I used to go home asking for more potatoes by raising my hand for getting where I was. Um, but she's always been in it with me, you know, and and really validated my emotions. You know, it's sport can be intoxicating. It can be a lonely world. I know for coaches, for sure, you know, the feeling of being alone on the island and, and definitely for an athlete going through those transitions. But uh yeah, she's she's just always been in it with me and, and really helped me feel seen throughout, e even today, even as in 38 years old. So grateful for that relationship. The the guest we had on in our last uh, session uh, was uh, Hugh McCutcheon, who led the women to a, a gold medal in, um, I believe, it was 2008. And um, not a gold. Uh, and the. Uh, he talked about three three relationships to trust, a, a player trusting themselves, a player to player and player to coach. Um, how do we create trust with another person? Yeah. Yeah, I, I really think it's through vulnerability. You know, Brene Brown was a, a big teacher in that for me. It's like, you know, do I am I vulnerable with you and then do I trust you or do I have to trust you first and then I'm vulnerable with you? So, you know, I, I, one point intersection I had that really got me into this work is that I did finally see a, a sports psychologist, you know, my senior year. And in my mind, there was no way I was going to go to talk to someone. I even tell my athletes now, Scott at your age was not going to go see Scott. You know, I had a very armor, like I'm good, nothing's broken. And, and really what that connection did for me is made me, going back to the lonely piece, a feeling less alone. Like in my head, all those doubts and fears were just mine. Like nobody else could possibly be experiencing these types of emotions or thoughts. And, and she normalized those for me. And that was very liberating and that was very freeing. Um, so I, I think the trust comes from like the willingness to see ourselves in each other's stories, you know, that maybe we have different, different experiences, but we can connect on emotion. We can connect on thoughts. We can connect on the feelings of not being enough or worried about what other people think. We can connect on shame and pain, certainly. So I, I think the trust is, is, is built from allowing ourselves to be seen and creating that space to foster with our athletes and coaches to do the same. You know, uh, um, I like the word story, that we create story. And, and Kirsten, I'm going to throw you into the fire here um, because you, you and I talked about a story you have um, in, in coaching that um, one of the stories is if you, if you lose a match, particularly a match against a 
worthy opponent. Um, you have emotions that aren't necessarily um, helpful. Can you talk about that? Well, you kind of talked about it, Scott, when you talked about it, even as a player, the identity piece, right? Like who you are is, is the athlete that you are. And I think as coaches, we run into that. And what I talked to Terry about was, um, you know, after tough losses, I thought, you know, I've had people say you feel grief, right? Like just true sadness. But I lost my father a year and a half ago. And that grief was different than a loss. I feel like a loss maybe has some some grief, but guilt is an emotion that I would define. Like, I feel like I'm responsible for the loss. And I've struggled with that. And it'll spiral me at different times of, you know, so I, I'm sure I'm not the only one out there. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on navigating that a little bit. Of course, I'm, I'm going to go back to all these great mentors and mentees I've had and probably mentees that don't even know that I've learned a lot. But, you know, Brene Brown would say, you know, to understand what we're capable of when we're in fear as leaders and coaches and where do we go? What armors do we use to self-protect? You know, and, it, it, you know, being I've been grateful to be on along the ride with a lot of coaches and, and just to see how they deal with that 24 hours of that loss. You know, and 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 we all have those go to's defaults to protect us. You know, some of us are we can get judgmental. You know, some of us can go into extreme perfectionist mode, like grind. I'm staying up all night to watch film. Some go to blame. It's on you guys. Figure this out. And then some of us can go to, you know, the guilt and shame of like, man, maybe I'm not enough. And maybe I'm not the right coach for them. You know, and it's it's kind of, I think, you know, one, helping coaches feel not alone in that situation, but to best emotionally regulate so you can get back to, you know, being who you are and, and giving yourself that 24 hours for that sting to wear off to just to get to the the truth of just what just happened. But but that's, like I said, I, I, that's why I never would want to be a coach. I would never want to be in the shoes because I know it's it's like, I can imagine it feels like just everybody's watching. You're on this bigger stage, not only for players, for coaches too. And so... Yeah, how how to feel that gut wrenching loss and regulate and, and get back to, you know, who you are. You know, I, I've heard people use you hear this word authentic, be your authentic self. But isn't guilt, grief, blame aren't aren't those part of being authentic? I, I mean, what what do people how how is that word valuable? Gosh, did you want to share more on that? Well, I don't know the answer to that, Terry. Um, I, I guess I'm trying to look at it from how do I reframe it? I, I almost feel like I'm I'm supposed to respond that way. And so I'm really going to challenge myself. And I think I'm going to talk to my athletes about that, that I'm going to respond. I'm going to really work to respond differently. Like you don't have to avoid me after a match. I don't, I don't have to be grumpy because we're going to move forward. And I, I do think there's, you know, lessons for them to see in that resiliency. So, um, so yeah, so I, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm not answering your question, Terry, but I was processing in my head of, you know, how do I handle this better? Cause I think I'm role modeling to my athletes what I don't want them to do. They don't need to feel like they're a lousy person. And I definitely go to the shame force portion, Scott, as, you know, I'm not worthy. And mm -hmm. I don't think that's what I want to role model to my athletes. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that, Coach. I think uh, the authentic 
Absolutely. Like there's no good or bad emotions, right? We feel what we feel. And I think part of that regulation is it's so it's our authentic self-talking and not our ego, you know, and, and that's where we go to is when, when the ego wants that instant validation, you know, to kind of eject out of the pain or fight the pain, but absolutely the authentic self to say like, this hurts. I'm hurting right now. I know we're all hurting. Um, let's sit with this for a little bit and then come back. Um, but absolutely emotions, emotion, right? You you mentioned ego. Glenn Alba, who who is a golf coach and a uh, sports psychologist at Pacific, I think he had a a big influence on John Dunning, who was an exceptional coach at Pacific and Stanford. Once said that some of us are going to have the opportunity to play to coach people with super egos. Um, I would think M Michael Jordan has a great ego. Um, a lot of our listeners would be familiar with Logan Tom had a, in college, had a, a very strong ego and almost said those people may need to be coached differently. And when he said that, I, I wasn't I wasn't sure about that. Um, Scott, do you have any idea, any idea on that? Do we need to approach somebody that is tremendously talented, tremendously gifted? And part of the reason that they are successful is this huge ego. How do we deal with that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And I think, you know, for the athlete, it's getting more context as far as, you know, they, this innate, talented, gifted athlete that still has this growth mindset, or are they still managing this uh, image or ego that they have, you know, needing for approval from others? Like, how do they orient, orient themselves in sport? So, you know, it's confidence is a good thing. You know, if, if we would all choose confidence, right? We don't typically always necessarily feel confident. So I think even with that athlete is, you know, we, the idea you teach a skill of confidence is that you have to earn it by doing really, really hard things, right? And so regardless of where you are, um, you know, on your journey or path or where you are in your potential, that, that we still want to get outside of our comfort zone and take risks so that, we've earned the right to say powerful things in the moments when it's time to go forward or let it rip. Um, yeah, I think, you know, when athletes see other athletes who appear confident now, it's kind of the swagger, you know, the kind of that arrogance, it's kind of that false confidence, you know, and, and we try to mimic that. And you see a lot of youth athletes. And so I think it's, again, really important to actually teach where what confidence is and where it comes from. Yeah, swagger's I, I, my list. Go ahead, Kirsten. Well, I was going to piggyback on that from a coaching perspective of identifying players in the recruiting process that are in fact confident and can handle that big moment um, versus the ones that are, you know, blowing smoke and maybe at, at in our sport at 23, 24 aren't going to be able to. So I think, and Terry and I were talking about this yesterday of, you know, when he was coaching home visits were very common and you really mm -hmm. went into the home and, and now visits are becoming less and less because of the, anyway, I mean, the timing, we, sometimes we don't even have them on an individual visit on campus and they're making decisions. And uh, the special players that we've had in our program aren't necessarily the most physically talented. Sometimes they are, but it's their mind. It's their work ethic. Mm -hmm. It's their drive. It's their to handle pressure. It's their resiliency. And I struggle being able to identify that in the recruiting process. Are there any things that you can recommend to us coaches that we lock into? 
Yeah, that's a really. I, I'd be curious with you, Coach, with your experience. What what questions have you asked, or how how have you been able to in those home visits to identify? Like, what what have you noticed throughout your career? Terry, I think she's meeting you. Read no, I think. No. <laughs> <laughs> I I haven't done home visits. I, I I think when they come on campus, I pay attention to. Um, and I think you talked about this, uh, TP, that, you know, how they interact with their parents, mm. how they interact with uh, our players. Are they engaging? But, you know, the flip side is the parent thing is a big deal because I think that's I'm now a parent role and I don't want the kid that's going to be nasty to me. But I do think the interaction with players, it's been all over the spectrum mm. on good and bad, you know, not even bad, quiet to engaging. And all those, you know, those players, I've had some quiet players on visits be just just wonderful student athletes and then ones that are really engaging be wonderful. So I don't feel like I have a, you know, a destination. Uh, TP, do you have any thoughts on what you locked into? Well, I think you've got to, ideally you get to see a prospective athlete in lots of situations and hopefully you'll get to see them enough that you'll see them in, in one where they're not having success and how they, re, how they respond to it. Um, how, if they're pulled out of a match or substituted out, do they continue to uh, support the team? Do they, you know, or, or do they, they place blame? However, the taller someone is and the better the arm speed, you, you tend to <laughs> overlook that. <laughs> you tend to <laughs> overlook some of those things. Um, Scott, what percentage of the time when you were a director of mental performance at Missouri, were you working with coaches and what percent of the time were you working with athletes? Um, yeah, great question. So I think, you know, my naive mind of what I thought sports psychology was going in as a GA, I thought it was going to be like 99% working with coach at, with athletes and 1% coaches. And also I came off this experience of that maybe coaches were kind of the enemy because they shaped my experience. Right. And then how quickly that turned because my mentor, one, Rick McGuire, was a coach and sports psychologist. So it was really introducing me what sports psychology looked like going to and through the coach. And um, by doing that, one, having a richer understanding of, man, if coaches just could just, if all they had on their plate was just coaching, wouldn't that be something? And like, how much probably is that part of your pie, you know, Coach Booth, right? Like all the things that you have to manage beyond that, that I didn't have a clue going in, you know? And so, um, understanding that sports psychology doesn't happen in a vacuum. And my best way to um, support the athlete is to support the coach. And, and they're already great mental performance coaches. I think it was just bringing some more language and context to help support them in their vision uh, for their program. But, you know, going back to the the recruiting piece, when I was work, started working with coaches, I would be on a, um, on a recruits, you know, visit. And they really set me up for failure because the photo shoot would be right after my talk, right? So they had to go talk to the mental performance coach. And then they, you know, have their photo shoot right after that. And so I probably got a pretty good idea and read of players. And I, I think of recruits and parents, you know, like if they were able to stay locked in and present, you know, and ask some questions and the recruit was engaged, or were they just staring at that clock going, all right, Scott, let's get through this because I know the photo shoot's coming. You know, I, I kind of had an idea about you know, how much ownership they were taking in their personal development. That gave me a little bit of a, of a feel. 
Yeah. Uh, I asked several people or several people responded on Twitter about things that they wanted to talk about. And when we think of a performance coach, we think of mindset. Um, uh, say somebody um, somebody struggles uh, shooting critical free throws in a game, but does well in practice. Uh, the, the same thing with serve in volleyball. How do you, let's say you have somebody that has the technical skills to do that well, but doesn't perform well under pressure. Can you talk about the process that you would go through with the athlete? Yeah. Well, well, hopefully, you know, in the way I, in my kind of philosophy of our work is it's a build it model, not a fix it model. So we want to build these personal resources now so that we don't have to fix it later. So I probably wasn't doing that team coach justice if my first intersection with that athlete was when something was going wrong. But how often does that happen? Yeah. And so going back to like, you know, part of the building of the mental training program, you know, is, you know, at the very beginning that you integrate it during preseason, you know, so we start teaching and talking about these mental skills before the season starts. Um, and even more before that, it's, you know, the vision, the, the passionate stuff I love to do work with is relationships and team building and camaraderie and who are we and what do we stand for? And then to get to the mental skills piece. But yeah, so so hopefully with that, that we've built a relationship so if that athlete comes in themselves, you know, because coach would like, so I'm going to send that athlete in to talk to you. And I said, no, don't do it. But don't don't make him or her come because they've got to want to take ownership of the personal development themselves. Like I can't, I had to learn that early on that I can't want it more than they do. And um, talking about the default, you know, going in about where my ego got in the way earlier in my career is that I had this feeling need to be liked and needed, you know, and so I wouldn't um, center my clients as much as I should have, that it was still bringing Scottish stuff into uh, meeting with that athlete. Um, so going back to your original question is, is if I can stay present as possible when I'm, when I'm meeting someone who's like an athlete where stuff is getting in the way, what I want to be able to help them do is to pull on their own insight. You know, what's, what's worked for you before when this has happened? You know, can you talk more about what's getting in the way? Like get better asking questions and maintaining a level of curiosity so they can understand it's not necessarily anything that they're lacking. It's not about the skills that they don't have. They have it. Um, but can we get to the awareness of what it is exactly that's getting in the way and help get some perspective around that? Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's interesting. Um, Kirsten, you and I talked last night about the number of setters that uh, we've seen in recent years that have the yips mm -hmm. um, when setting. And, and I would make this observation before Kirsten um, speaks here that it, um, the yips in golf in putting um, sometimes it's easier to build a, a newer neurological pathway so if i have the yips i get a long putter and i create a new movement but that's not possible in setting um, you pretty much have to set the ball a certain way so kirsten why don't you take it from there yeah, I've had this with a couple athletes and honestly, they've been some of my favorite human beings. And so that's, I think it's the perfectionism that, and I, I think the hard part for me is I'd recruit them again. It, I mean, not because I wanted them to get the yips, but like <laughs> they had good feet, they had good hands, 
they were wonderful human beings. They were great leaders. But when stress would hit, I mean, I remember one one player we'd do say we need to get five in the target and it would be one, two, three, four. And then the fifth wouldn't just miss. It would be like mangled. Mm-hmm. And so that would manifest itself in games. And, and I, you know, I've, I've talked to a couple of them and said, I, you know, they never made it. I mean, just to tell you the ending and, um, and I feel, I mean, I go back to guilt. Geez, I feel like I'm living my life in guilt right now. <laughs> I feel bad about that because I loved them as humans so much. And, uh, so I, you know, I don't know how I, I don't know what I should have done differently. I, I didn't ask questions. So I love that you said that, Scott. I like have them. I was more telling them ideas, sure. um, but I'm not, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Yeah, it, 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 those are hard, right? In like every other sport, whatever you want to call them, you know, and, and even when we say it out loud, it, it tends to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I have this, but you're right. It's like, it's usually the the kids that we really care about because they're the high achievers, they're driver, they're perfectionists, you know, and your heart goes out and it's almost like they're caring too much, right. you know, that, that it's just the fear that's driving them instead of their committed action. So, you know, it's like some people want to go right to the mental skills. Like what can I give them in the moment? Like, so it wouldn't be necessarily the time to introduce meditation or mindfulness, but, but hopefully like the, with a build it model, I go back to identity you know, is what, what I really want to help athletes is build an identity that can't be taken away with it, away from them, regardless of how the match or game goes. So how can we dissolve pressure a little bit? So they're not seeing that moment as so big, but just another opportunity to go do themselves. Uh, and, and, you know, so if, if they are experiencing that, can they just lead with courage if that's one of their values? Mm-hmm. So they don't get so tied with thinking about the outcome. Um, so really what more the- value-based way. What are the questions you ask to help the athlete build an identity? Um, Well, I I like to do some tools and exercises um, because if you asked, I I don't even know how you'd still, how I'd answer like, Scott, who are you? Like, how do you answer that? You know, or or certainly from 18 to 22, who are you? Um, I'm Scott. You know, what's important to you? Family, friends. I mean, even when there's, you know, maybe, uh, you know, some of the things I could share, there wasn't some deeper rooted questions or exercises that, that was getting me to think about myself and have some richer understanding. So for example, we do uh, from positive psychology, I had them take the values and action survey. Um, so this is just a quick 10 to 12, 15 minute uh, assessment that you can take that you get feedback on your top five character strengths. So it's a little bit different than, you know, like the, uh, strength-based tests where it's like achiever or um, harmonizer or whatever those type strengths. It's more about who you are and what's most important to you. What do you stand for at the end of the day? So courage could come out, kindness, um, love or gratitude or perseverance. And, and that gets them talking a little bit. So when they get feedback on their top five, you know, just asking some questions about were you surprised by any of those top five? And by the way, don't look at the bottom five because that's where you want to go. We have the capacity to have all these 24 strengths. The top five are just the ones that are most prominent for you. So, you know, asking questions of, of, during times that you were tested, what, what strengths did you really maximize or, or harness to move you forward? Or when you're at your best, what, what strengths are you really utilizing? And then one of my other favorite part with team building is actually having um, their teammates affirm those strengths in each other. I did this at a at a business present presentation one time, and we were doing the values action survey. And um, uh, one of the uh, workers brought in their eight year old daughter 
uh, because school got canceled and she ended up taking the youth survey. And so I was asking questions at the end, you know, what it felt like, you know, to have those um, strengths or qualities affirmed in you. And she rose her hand. I said, oh, it was just cute. Right. So I just said, yeah. And she goes, it, it feels like um, a massage, but on the inside. And I was like, what? Like kids are amazing geniuses. Right. But it's like, yeah, it, it certainly does. Doesn't it feel good to be affirmed for who you are and what's most important to you outside of what we're usually affirmed for, like the talent, the outcome, right. The recognition piece. So that would be an example coach of, um, you know, some exercises that I would pull them to get them thinking about identity is really values. It is, is this process one of the reasons that you and, and other people in your profession have chosen to, to not choose the term sports psychologist, but mental performance coach? Yes. I mean, twofold of that. So like sports psychologists, I, I wouldn't be called a sports psychologist because I don't have a clinical licensure. So I can't even use psychologist. But so even if it was just sports psychology, yeah, the idea of mental performance, how that looks more of like a build it holistic personal development along with athletic performance and nutrition is that we've kind of shifted. So we understand that everybody has room for mental performance, even if we thought specifically only athletes needed sports psychology. I think it makes it more inclusive. Here's a couple things I pulled off um, the internet yesterday. Among student athletes, this was from John Johns Hopkins. Among student athletes, approximately 30% of women, 25% of men report having high anxiety. Furthermore, about 25% of elite athletes experience disorder eating, burnout, depression. Um, and then this story on January 6th, UConn's women's basketball game against DePaul was canceled because UConn only had seven players. Mm -hmm. A high percentage of injuries uh, 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 that were pre prevented. I'm seeing this across all sports. Kirsten, what's your observation on that? As far as injuries, I mean, holy cow. I, I was talking to my assistance that I think all of our incoming hitters. So like four kids are injured before they've even arrived to campus. Now, not, not huge injuries, but are probably going to have to be managed through their whole career. So, and then from the mental side, um, you know, I, I think sometimes we get wind of issues prior, but I, I have to say most of the time uh, that's not being talked about in the recruiting process and maybe we need to ask that but I don't know but you know you find out that they um, have maybe they've been diagnosed with a mental illness or I mean obviously you know Scott a lot of them emerge during college um, so you know you're battling both those things both their physical and mental health uh, much more so than I you know again I'm aging myself but when I started 20 years ago. Are you even allowed to ask that Kirsten? Yeah, probably not. I wouldn't feel comfortable too. I mean, I don't know. Are you, Scott? Do you know if you're allowed to ask that in the process? Yeah, unless they want to disclose, that's confidential information yeah, for them. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So my sense is that with COVID, Portal, NIL, that there is a mixing of performance and mental health issues mm -hmm. that that we haven't seen in the past. Is that accurate? 
it, it, it's, it, it's interesting because, and yet I, I'll get this, this question every time I go out and do something out of athletics, you know, to a presentation. And I can usually spot the persons that's going to ask me midway through the president. I go, that's going to be the person that's going to ask, here it comes. Right. And sure enough, hand goes up and I'm like, oh boy, you know, here we go. He goes, Dr. Morton, and don't you think kids these days, right, are just so entitled and, and they're so soft and they lack mental toughness. And then they proceed to go back to when I played back in my day, this is what I had to do, right? Without fail, I get that almost at every talk that I give. And and so, you know, I have to regulate through that response myself, Coach Booth. And um, and then I'll just share, you know, it's like understanding where they're coming from. But, but here's what happens. Like when Scott and Morton had bad games and she had a lot. There were a lot, you know, hometown girl. Um, before I could get my eyes on the newspaper, my dad would wake up early in the morning and get in his farm truck and drive down a newspaper and get his eyes on it before I could just to see what, what was being said, you know? <laughs> so I'd have to see it to what, till the, the next day. And so for athletes now, when does it happen? Feedback. During the game, they, they arrive the game. You know, right afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. It's happening in real time. And there's that's and the mentions, right? So I say I, I I disagree. I think it takes more mental toughness, however you want to define mental toughness, to be in the arena now more than ever. And we do a lot with Teddy Roosevelt's man in the arena or woman in the arena quote about what it means to dare greatly um, and not listen to the cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Right. And so it takes more mentally t- toughness now because there's more temptation to play it small or safe because the stage is just bigger. It just is. It, it's just bigger. And so that's a way I power athletes, but also coaches as well as knowing that it, it takes more courage to be that man and the woman in the arena, even, even with what we want is on the other side of it, even with the uncertainty and the awkwardness is can we still stay in it without tapping out? you know, and really redefine failure. But coach, going back to that, I think that with the heightened stage and how we're conditioned to think about ourselves in sport, like at the system level, creates all these other issues that we might have not have seen before. Um, We, you know, we use the word neurotic. A person is neurotic. Uh, I have the feeling that institutions can be neurotic. And, um, uh, that's that's a whole nother podcast, but it implies not being aware of some of the things that you just talked about. Um, you know, having leadership that doesn't have emotional intelligence, having leadership that is primarily transactional, uh, and we we see this in in our federal government. We see it everywhere we look. So it isn't it isn't just in sport. I'm I'm guessing that, and this is a question for either of you, whether it's a player or a coach, that you've run into situations where you've spent a good deal of time with someone, but they don't change. You know, (laughs) they don't, you don't sense that they emotionally commit with passion to what both of you have identified. Have you, have either of you dealt with that? Go for it, Scott. But yes, <laughs> oh, yes. Um, 
you know, like in the support staff role, I mean, I think going back to that's where I had to understand, is it, is it taking more courage, got to hold on and hang in right now with a particular coach or player, or does it take more courage to let go? And knowing there's, there's no more work to be done here. And, and that's a hard one because especially as a helper, you identify as a helper and the fixer to be able to let go. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think with more experience and wisdom as I've gotten older, it's been easier to let go and know like, you know, that I didn't have to take that as a personal hit to my ego that sometimes alignment's not there. And as much as you care about that person, they, they've got to be able to sit in their own pain, you know, and, and have to, you know, adapt and adjust. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely been those intersections where I've had to uh, wrestle with that question. And I think it's hard. Go ahead. Sorry. Where, where I've seen it some is um, maybe a player that really does, I think, sincerely want to change in, in that moment. But then, you know, a week later, they, they just, for whatever reason, can't continue with what they're trying to do. You know, and that could be, you know, uh, how they handle a tough situation on the court. Like, I think in the moment, they sincerely want to do better, but something is holding them back. And that could be nutrition, that could be pushing through, you know, weights in the morning, you know, it could be a whole litany of different things. And, I, you know, it's not just athletes that want to do better, um, but struggle in the moment. But that's, that's the hard one for me, because I think sincerely, they want to do better. But then in the moment, you know, they get pulled, and they just, for whatever reason, can't, right? You know, there, there are coaches like Kirsten that have, um really good insight into the things that we're talking about that we normally associate with a performance coach. But isn't there a real advantage in having an athlete meet with somebody that's not seen as the the decider? (laughs) Uh, What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I always say that, too, because it's, you know, that can be hard, I think, for coaches, you know, it's like their job is to manage this team and then trust these other people outside. They're still going to support their vision. And so when the coach is like, coach, I'm basically telling them the exact same that you are. It's just a different voice. So don't worry about that. You know, like I got your back here. Um, but yeah, I, I, I definitely think there is something to say to have um you know, and, and going back to what you said, Coach Booth, too, you know, the, the idea of adjusting and change. I've also known athletes that have transferred to other schools that weren't for here, and they had flourishing careers after they transferred. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like it's not like we're they have the expectation that everybody's always going to be a good fit and that, that it has to be me or coach or whatever to be the one to turn this this athlete around. That sometimes they're a better fit somewhere else. And it's like, that's, that's OK. Like, egos don't have to be threatened there. Um, but yeah, going back, yeah, I, I think it's nice to have a space, you know, for athletes where they can still understand that we're all on the same page here in the other vision, but I might be able to share some things more with Scotta than I would with coach and, and know that it's, that it's all, all healthy and we're all moving in the same direction. You know, when I go back to that, when you were playing for Montana state, um, your coach, uh, uh, was it Trish Binford? Was that her name? Yeah. And she has had a wonderful career there. She's still coaching there. But but as a younger coach, 13 losses in a row, what would, <laughs> if, if she had walked into Dr. Scott Morton's <laughs> office, 
And we, we actually laugh. I mean, you know, <laughs> if you'd have told me at like 22 when I was done and that was her first year of coaching, I think my junior year, that we would have the relationship that we do now, we both wouldn't have believed it, let alone that I would have got even to this profession, right? There was a lot of animosity, I think, that we would both laugh about now. Now I do some work with the team, which is just so fun. Um, but it was like the perfect storm of if, of having a not very talented team that she inherited with no seniors combined with your first year as a college division one coach, you know, so um, I didn't have the lens or, or even the desire to understand what it could be for a first year coach when I was an athlete, cause I was in mine, you know, and then for her understanding, you know, the nuances that go on and keeping a team together throughout the year, you know, rather than making those emotion-based decisions right away because you want to win. Like how do you let those organically play out? Um, and so that's what kind of happened that year is that the, those of us that have been around for some time, um, our positions got, you know, um, taken by some freshmen or newcomers right away, you know? And, and so what I would tell that coach, I couldn't tell at that age, but to let that happen organically, let those um, starters or whatever lose those positions um, throughout the year. So it looks like an obvious thing, as long as those starters are doing what they need to be doing. Um, because you still got to protect the team culture too, right? It's just not easy as best five you're in there. Cause you don't know as far as how they're showing up to practice every day and they doing all the other little things. You, you, know, you used the word, Chris, uh, Kirsten and I talked about this last night, culture. What, what's your two sentence definition of culture? I think I actually got this from volleyball. Um, was it Nicole Davis on the Finding Mastery podcast? But, you know, the, the the mantra that I love to get around is like out-teaming and what it means to out-team. And so culture, to me, I, when I think of culture, I think about belonging, like a sense of belonging where you're able just to lock into your task and your role that everybody has an equal partnership and investment. It's, it's about the team. You know, it's not about the individual. It's always about the team. Um, and, and that's work, I think, in mental training that you have to do throughout the season. You know, it's just not a preseason thing. That's something you have to consistently nurture and model throughout the season. Um, I'd be curious what your two thoughts when you when you guys talk about culture with your team. What does that look like? Values come up are big for me, too. TP, give yours because yours was a little different. Because I think, well, yeah. I mean, Scott is talking about good culture, right? I, yeah, I think culture are, are is our decisions and our behaviors and the values that lead to that. Sure. So it's like if everybody on the team had a had a compass here and I'm going through a cafeteria line and there's this food here and this food here. Well, which one of those puts me and my team in position to move toward our goals? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's how we make it's how we make decisions. Um, that's that's the way that I've that I've thought about it. Um, and when you're in, when you're all in, whether it's the custodian, the performance coach, the assistant coaches, the the kids standing down there during the match who never get to play. When you're all in, that is um, that's overwhelming to an opponent, mm -hmm. and you sense it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's not, that is not swagger. You know, swagger comes from the word swag stick. It's, uh, it's something that people use to c- command attention. Both of you probably saw the YouTube video that was up a few weeks ago of the football coach going into a university and the people are seated in the chairs and he says, now when I say stand up, I want those butts out of the chair as fast as you can. Stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. It it looked like the game Mother May I on steroids. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't be critical of it. I just, th- I just thought, how long does, what is, what do these kids think of this? Mm-hmm. Scotty, you saw that, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Yeah, that, that just felt so transactional. And I mean, Coach Booth, I'd be interested about your thoughts on the culture too. You know, it's like, I, I think the more that we can give ownership back to the team, that this is about them. And, you know, I think for so long when they get there, while those other issues that come up is because the experience is no longer theirs. And so how do you have them reclaim their experience as theirs? You know, so the values and the set of behaviors that guide the values, they need to come up with those. They have to operationalize their own core values as a team. You know, sometimes we just have some sexy sayings on the walls where we think are, but we don't go as far as to operationalize. Like what do these actually look like in action? And then when that comes from them, that, that's really, really powerful, yeah. right? That becomes a culture because then, then the accountability is not about you're not doing this. It's about the standard that we said we individually and collectively wanted accountability when it comes about blame, it's not accountability anymore, right? It's like holding yourself. So I think a lot of that work, you know, we with coaches, even as mental trainers, it's, I'm more of a facilitator, I'm more of a guide to help them define the experience that they want. I think you introduced a critical point there. It's collaborative and, yeah. uh, and it's, it's much easier for the coach or the, or leaders on the team to come back and say, Hey, we committed to this. This yeah. grew out of our, and they may need some guidance depending on on how young the culture is, or uh, where the leadership is. Um, parents, what you know? Can you give us some guidelines on parents who are putting their kids in position to be on a club team? Or they're, you know, in other words, they're paying for the development of their kids. What's, what are the healthiest things that parents can do? I might tip this one off to Coach Booth. I'd be curious because I, I know club volleyball is, is huge, and I'm sure you get asked that question quite a bit. Yeah, it, it is fascinating because you see, and I would say 90, 90% of parents do a great job. I think we we lump parents as bad. Most are really do a great job of supporting their kid and keeping it in perspective. We just hear the stories of the, the crazy ones, but um, yeah, I, I think I've seen, I've seen the parent wanting to live through the kid, you know, of literally saying to me once, how do you stay so calm? This is what I live for. Um, so I can imagine the pressure. So I think as parents, we have to make sure that our love for our children is not tied to this. And, the other thing that I've learned going through it, I used to think, you know, I know what it looks like to be a good parent and, you know, to do the right things, but it does hurt. I think acknowledging that it's hard to see your kids struggle. So 
you know, I've got a kid right now that's not getting a lot of playing time and, and it's hard, but I also know I can't display that to the kid and she is positive about it. And I think it's a lot because Eric and I have said, Hey, it's all good. She's not on her phone right now. So even if she's sitting on the bench, she's still interacting. <laughs> so reframing it for us, even when it's hard, I mean, it's the same thing. We have a discussion with our athletes. We know it's hard to not play, but you can't go to, you can't go infect the locker room, right? Like, so we acknowledge that you not playing is hard, but we still have to talk about how we react. Same thing with parents, right? We can acknowledge it's hard to see our kid play bad, sit on the bench, be injured, all those things, but we still have to respond the appropriate way and that's where sometimes that disconnect can happen when they start complaining with their kid and, you know, festering or why didn't you play? You know, I just think we have to be better than that. That's really well said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as you were, as you were talking, uh, my dad, when I was growing up, left it up to us. So he would put the chinning bar in the closet, but he didn't come home each day and say, did you do your chin-ups today? <laughs> and there's part of me that wishes he would have, you know, that uh, because I also think it's kind of like uh, you have a kid and, and they start playing musical instruments in fourth grade and the kid may say, well, I, I don't know that I wanna play piano, but they don't know what playing piano is. They don't know what what it's going to feel like a year or two later after you've developed uh, mm -hmm. some skill with it. So um, I, I have I have conflicting ideas about that, like uh, that if we're going to do it, let's do it well. Let's let's commit to a certain amount of time and see what we come up with, you know, whether whether it can happen. Um, Scott, uh, go for it. You know, when you're now, uh, you probably have some clients that are still at the university, some teams that you may work with, but a lot of your clients, who are they? Who, what's, what's the typical Scott Amore, Morton client in <laughs> Columbia, Missouri? It's still uh, evolving, which has been really interesting. I never quite know who's going to come through my door here, which has been kind of fun. But um, that, that was one of the reasons why I decided to resign in May is, you know, it was it was always a compliance violation to meet with recruitable high school aged athletes. And so that's really opened the door for a lot of high school athletes and teams where I can maybe get to them a little bit sooner in their personal development. That has been exciting. Um, but it's really on the you know full spectrum. You have some executive coaching coaching that comes in, um, some business what, coaching that I do. And what do you do there? Give it. Get, can you give us an example or a story? Yeah. Um, so kind of the out-teaming model, I'll actually go back to also what I did at Mizzou was a lot of staff development. So it wasn't just, you know, individual teams, but even as an athletic department, how we could come together. Um, and, and one was, uh, you know, that summer retreat where I was given the tall task of help bridging the gap between sport administrators and coaches, head coaches. And you're like, oh, wow, that's. Well, good luck. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? Because head coaches are like, I don't trust my sport administrator because they've never coached, right? How could they possibly understand? And then the sport administrator is like, the coach is never happy. I can never make them happy. They're always wanting, 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 you know? And so thinking about, okay, well, you know, how can I do this? So they have to take ownership over this experience. So we end up doing some speed dating. <laughs> 
So we made two circles and one was the outer ring of the head coaches. And then in the middle was the sport administrators or other um, head department heads. And you're paired up with someone and you had 30 seconds or I actually think I gave them a minute. I made it a little bit more awkward for them, uncomfortable. And I said, for a minute straight, when the timer goes off, you have to share one um, special strength or quality in that person. In themselves uh, or the other person? The other person. Yeah. And they had a minute straight to do that. And, you know, I, I knew some background going in about how I wanted to place people. Anyway, um, the minute would go, then they'd have to return, you know, then the next minute and then they'd shift speed dates. So everybody was getting, you know, at least one or, or 10 to 15 people in the athletic department. And I'm not kidding you. The body language at the beginning, I was like, what in the world am I doing? Scott, this is a big, like, oh, it's here. Everybody they want to have anything to do with this, you know? And then by the end, I could not get them to stop talking. I could not get them. And then you're just seeing their body language. They're having fun. They have these big smiles. And then, you know, just asking some questions about what do we want to take from this moving forward? You know, these, these ideas and stories we build about whether people think of us are usually so um, self-limiting and not true. So it's that type of work coach that I'll go in and do with other uh, businesses that are looking for team building or collaboration, or they want help operationalizing their core values or, um, you know, they're feeling burnout and exhausted because through COVID, you know, and, and, and trying to find more moments for connection and joy. So sports always been kind of my platform to do that, but, but really it's, this work is available for us all, right. About how can we create more connect, uh, moments for connection and joy. And, and that's why my leap of faith and my goal for it was, was this, you know, I, I started to realize that myself a little bit that um, I needed some more alignment and that also I was exhausted you know, that, that I was noticing in myself that I, there were some days going into work where I, I didn't want to go and feeling like my calling was being exploited a little bit more by the system. And so I, that was a courage to let go and for, for my situation in May too. Well, thank you for sharing that. that, that, that that's, um, that's a wonderful story. Um, the, the things you're talking about have always interested me more than volleyball. That volleyball it, I, it could have been baseball. My father was a baseball coach, but providing the opportunity to do for people to do something better than they thought they could do it is really what I found interesting. And the advantage of being in volleyball as a team sport, I also coach golf at a college, it's different. You know, you send the golfers out, but they're on their own and you can help them individually, but you can, you said it, you can out team the opponent. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the problem in volleyball is not that, is that we have too many players in a small area and, and how do we get these people to, uh, to function? And, and uh, you know, it's a gestalt. How do we create a gestalt? experience here. So you work with businesses. Um, do you work with any, with any clubs, any, any soccer clubs or? Yeah, it started around here in Columbia, just some, some of the youth sport teams. Um, I, I also contract with another um, company that's still meeting with the college student athletes virtually that might not be able to uh, afford their own SCADA or counseling psychologists. So the, a school signs up for so many hours and they 
literally just have a virtual calendar that I don't really know who's going to quite appear on it uh, uh, daily, which is fun. Like I might have someone from UMass um, all the way back to the West Coast. So, so that that's fun. Although I I do miss a lot of the context that's that surrounds student athletes, like being there daily, observing that I think you have to have to be really successful in this role and to be able to help coaches, right? Um, so still trying to figure out how I can best provide that virtually <laughs> and support the coach is a new challenge. Um, but going back to what you said about teams, you know, how, how do you get teams, even with athletes coming from small areas to buy in that? Well, you have coaches like Coach Booth, right? It's like those transformational coaches that that believe in the team concept, but that's a value that's important to them. And Coach, I just went back and listened to your um, last press conference or game presser from your last loss, you know, and you can just feel that in the emotion, you know, and the girls, you know, are teary eyed and you just kept saying it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And, that, and I'm sure it wasn't just because of the loss, you know, it's, yeah. isn't that what it's supposed to be about is. I know. Yeah. That you go along with that. Yeah. Uh, TV, before we wrap up, I, I want to take it to a basic level a question for you because one of the things that I've really taken away from you today is you've got to be proactive maybe proactive is not the word but you, you need to be doing these things rather than reactive when when the, when the yips arrive right or you know something so there's things that you're doing prior so if I'm a coach high school club college and I'm not really doing anything I mean I know I want my team to get along but I'm not doing anything proactive to create that either that culture piece meditative. I mean, where do I start? Like, what would you say if I'm at baseline and maybe at the college level, I have time, but at the high school level, I don't have as much time. I, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on some basic things to kind of get going on building the mind. Well, I think the well, one thing, nice thing is that I think my field is really expanding, you know, whether you have the resources actually in, in the university, if you're a college coach, I would say to start using those. Sometimes the there we just haven't made ourselves open to them for whatever reason or vice versa um and then you know as far as my co go for it, business coaching there's there are mental performance coaches that have got their own things you know that are just eager and hungry you know to to be a part of youth programs high school programs um you name it so it's, it's like the the stuff is out there i think it's just helping provide those in, intersections to where we, you can first have those contacts so that the mental performance coach can meet the coach where they are and get an understanding about, okay, um, have you even built a coach philosophy yet? You know, start there, right? Like, why do you coach? What What's your why? Who are, who are people that made you feel big, feel seen and powerful? And now how does that philosophy come out with the athletes that you work with? Let's start there. How about values? Let's get you thinking about values. Like, what are your non-negotiables as a coach? two or three. And then now let's help your team maybe come up with the other three. Let's operationalize those together. Right. Um, and th then it's the team part. And then I think you can slowly get to the mental skills. Usually in my experiences, if I lead off with mental skills, I've lost them. Just it's kind of boring, <laughs> right? You want to get their whole, whole hearts and souls in it. So I like to start from more of the identity piece, working with athletes. And that doesn't always have to be SCADA. You know, sometimes Coach, you asked who am I working with as coaches. You know, they want mental performance coaching too. So it's kind of helped them have an idea, build a curriculum so that I don't need to be present so they can facilitate that, especially with youth and high school um, age athletes as well. Um, I don't know if I really answered your question, Coach. No, that does. I think that gives some tangible things of, of steps to take. That was good. 
What what books or videos, you know, you mentioned Brene and, and I've heard you mention several other people as well, but what three or four books do you think would be great for a coach or a parent to read that explore these ideas? Yeah, I'm still waiting for someone to write that book, you know, that I just feel like is one that I just want to have everybody be in it. I don't think I'm the person to write it. Again, I think I just am a way to... Uh, <laughs> Everything I've learned, you know, I know how much it's original, you know, it's what I've gained from a, a lot of great mentors, but I would say Fear Less by Dr. Pippa Gron. She's a sports psychologist. It's very good. Um, how do you spell her last name? G-R-A-N-G-E. I think uh, Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday is a really easy read that cuts up chapters. Um, trying to look at my book list here, too. You know, the, the, the books that I'm reading now are definitely don't have a sport context. So I don't know if I would really introduce those to coaches that are in sport. You know, it's kind of what's just calling me right now. Um, I love Glennon Doyle's work right now. We can do hard things podcast. That's that's been amazing. Of course, Mike Gervais and Finding Mastery. He has great little clips, minutes on mastery that I like to play for teams. And then we just have some discussion around it. Um, yeah, I'd start with those. Yeah. Those are all good. I, I I listen to Finding Mastery and Glennon Doyle. Those are those are wonderful. I I can't imagine two better guests than we've had today. Um, and I thought the dy the dynamic, um, Kirsten. I, I thought it was wonderful that you were willing to do this because I thought you your insight and the questions you asked were um, things that certainly I might not have thought of. And it's been wonderful. So. Um, thank you both for being on Inside the Coaching Mind. I also want to thank our producer, Dave Pulaski and Learfield, who do such a wonderful job. And finally, I want to thank HumanX. And it's great to be on a team that uh, is interested in developing uh, uh, coaches. So thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Inside the Coaching Mind with Coach Terry Pettit. Tune in next time as we welcome in another guest to talk leadership, coaching, and team building. Inside the Coaching Mind is presented by HumanX Ventures and in collaboration with Learfield.